Hello and welcome to Dungeon Regular, a show about modules, adventures, and dungeons. I'm Nova, also known as Idle Cartillery, and I'm reading through Dungeon Magazine one module at a time. I'll summarize that module, talk about its strengths and weaknesses, and then talk about a few interesting things about it that could be used at the table or impact your own homebrew design. Today I'm going to talk about Guardians of the Tomb by Carl Smith, the final module in issue number one, September 1986. Guardians of the Tomb is effectively a four-page trap designed to trick a party of players to their doom while dangling before them the promise of treasure to be unfulfilled. It's the kind of encounter that would fit right in in a game of Dungeon Crawl Classics or Can, where the problem-solving and limited resources with vulnerable characters is part of the playstyle, but less so in any game when you become extensively attached to your characters. What can we take home from Guardians of the Tomb, even if we don't use it in our home campaign? Number one, the first line of this is, takes place at an abandoned shrine to a forgotten thief. What an evocative line. It's very clear that the thief is not a god or someone of great magic, although less clear, and the idea that some kind of worship is happening towards significant ancestors or famed individuals is a clear and succinct piece of world building, and one that stands out from the usual approaches in these kinds of encounters, which tend to allude to forgotten gods or trapped monsters. The further encounter raises more questions. What trickster is this, that he lays such a trap for strangers? Who are the long-dead followers of the thief that come to battle with the player characters when the trap is triggered? Just all round, this is a fascinating piece of world building, and it goes to show that simple questions can reveal fascinating outcomes. Number two, it's interesting to me that this is framed as a scenario where player characters are expected to follow rails to the encounter written, when in most modern pieces, they'd either be framed as secret locations or random encounters that are foreshadowed by some kind of sign. I felt similarly of an earlier module in this same issue, The Elven Home. I wonder if it reflects a change in attitudes over the years, or if it reflects the desires of the magazine. And perhaps these encounters were simply random encounters or locations in the author's home games that were adapted to the magazine's guidelines. It's interesting to me that this seeming clash between TSR's attitudes and prevailing attitudes of GMs may have long since been diverging. Number three, stat blocks. I think this is the first full AD&D stat block in the magazine. It takes up half a column. I'm historically not a fan of stat blocks, and especially large ones, which for me are ones in AD&D and BX, let alone the ones in 5th edition or Pathfinder. To me, they're obstructive to the flow of the text, and they make the module difficult to run. However, I've been running the playtest version of Can 2nd edition, and playing in it as well, and playing a bit of Mothership lately, and I'm coming around to a specific brief version of a stat block. In the right format, and for me that's not BX or AD&D, a stat block can be a force for good. I think it's particularly interesting then that in this, the full stat block is given for a creature that was created, I assume, for the module, but only the inline stat block was given for a creature that already exists in the monster manual. This is not an approach I've really seen before, and it's an interesting one. I don't have strong opinions about having stats on the page of the encounter, as to me that's kind of complex. I don't want a page of stat blocks crowding out my usable and complex dungeon room, but I also don't love flicking to the bestiary appendix every time there's a risk of combat. A middle ground has not yet presented itself, and I'd put up with either so long as the stat blocks are kept largely brief. Number four. There are a page of rules for crossing the lake to get to the shrine. 
with a single encounter with a dangerous weed. This is a strange choice. It feels like the intention here is to force the players into a confrontation with the weed. The rocks are slippery, the air is turbulent, etc. But the weed does very little aside from soften up the player characters for future violence, and I don't see much opportunity for interesting responses from the players here, as most of the obvious answers to the avoiding the weed problem are accounted for in the text and rendered impossible. The one unaccounted for answer, which seems fairly obvious to me, is use a boat, which feels like an oversight given the tone of the rest of the crossing of the lake encounter. I think that for most players, that would be their second option. I'm not opposed to traversal hazards, but the way this is rendered here is strange, and doesn't foreshadow the foreboding, tricks to god riddles, and the traps of the shrine in a way that makes me feel like it was intended to. Perhaps the author's imagination fell short. My take home here, then, is to make sure that the path to your location foreshadows the nature and themes of that location, and gives the player characters a free choice in whether or not to engage with it. Number five, the shrine itself. The shrine itself is a riddle and a puzzle, and has strong potential to be a good one, except that it's designed to railroad the player characters into some kind of uncanny escape. There are 100 strength-draining foes that attack them once trapped, and no warning aside from the words of the riddle that anything is awry. It's all kind of absurd. On the other hand, if there were stone slabs that fell into place when the trap was triggered rather than a stone wall spell, it would be a trap that might be considered and predicted, and I think this is a more interesting approach to traps. The 100 attacking shades of lost thieves are still an unexpected addition that would place a thorn in player characters' sides, especially with a lake to cross that the shades can simply levitate across. So the additional layers of ha, huh, impossible trap, seem unnecessary. This aspect feels like it's attributable to a culture of antagonistic play that has aged poorly. I don't mind traps at all that are deadly and difficult to decipher, but I don't like traps that are designed to be unable to decipher. That's Guardians of the Tomb in a nutshell. I hope you'll join me for the next episode of Dungeon Regular. If you have any questions, please reach out. I'm on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Mastodon at Idle Cartulary, and I write reviews and blog at playfulvoid.game.blog. If you'd like to support Dungeon Regular, please visit my Ko-fi at ko-fi forward slash idlecartulary. You can make a one-off donation or become a member. Members are prioritized for their questions to be included on the Dungeon Regular mailbag episodes, can make suggestions for future bathtub reviews, and get to see bathtub reviews a week in advance on my Ko-fi before they go public. Our theme music is an extract from Turning the Page by Kirk Osamayo on the Free Music Archive, used under a Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening to Dungeon Regular.